thing as being too Jewish. Thank you very much. Shalom and welcome to the Two Jewish Radio Show with Rabbi Sam Kohan and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. We'll have a great hour together today of news, music, comedy, and conversation. Our guest this morning is Rabbi Bill Rothschild, sharing memories of integration in Atlanta and Martin Luther King Jr. We'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com or visit us on the web at 2JewishRadio.com. The opinions of the host and guests on 2Jewish are their own and not those of the radio station. 2Jewish is paid for by 2Jewish radio programs and podcasts, Tucson, Arizona. And now, here's Rabbi Sam Kohan and 2Jewish. Shalom. Well, I had a birthday yesterday. I no longer confess my age in public, so don't bother to ask. And I must admit that these non-milestone birthdays don't really have the same resonance they once did. I do like celebrations of all kinds, and I certainly enjoy birthday parties and such, don't get me wrong, but the passing of years lacks the flair it once held for me. There are far more important things to celebrate than the mere passing of time. Still, this birthday month of January has always been a good month for me. A bit lucky, I think, but the actual day itself, just another day, really. I usually work on my birthday. Yesterday, for example, I led Torah study and conducted Shabbat services, and I generally enjoy giving gifts more than receiving them. I do like cake and spending time with family and friends in pleasure, but there's nothing particularly special about birthdays otherwise for me. Now, this will sound trite, I suppose, but what I do like to celebrate is Jewish holidays, including the Shabbat, in a full and heartfelt way. And since there are so many great Jewish holidays, I mean, we just had Hanukkah, Tubishvat's coming up, Purim is wonderful, Passover follows a month later, and so on. That leaves only a little room for the more conventional American celebrations of birthdays, the 4th of July, New Year's, Valentine's Day, and so on. Even wedding anniversaries, as lovely as they can be, pale a bit in comparison to the Jewish festivals, with their long, long history, array of fascinating rituals and traditions, delicious foods, and deeper meaning. I mean, Super Bowl Sunday is now a national holiday in America. What exactly are the higher elements of a football game in which the commercials and halftime performers are the big draw? Now, the best way to connect to these great Jewish festivals is to start by observing Shabbat, the weekly holiday that adds light, joy, song, family, and love into our lives every seven days. And you can do that at a synagogue near you, you know, like mine, Congregation Beit Simcha, or at home by lighting candles, having some Kiddush wine, enjoying fresh-baked challah and a family meal filled with blessing. Try it. I think you'll love it. To play us in this morning, we have a fun Israeli song about the new Hebrew. It turns out to be mostly borrowed words from English. 
The chorus is essentially, oh my God, please, this hard language. I don't understand it at all. Speak Hebrew, please. Yesh li delay, ani be jet lag. Hayali overweight, kaniti en beg. Katavti mailim, osafti jpeg. An lo be focus, tosif li hashtag swag. Oh my God, safa kasha. העברית החדשה, אני לא מבין את המבטא, דבר אל העברית בבקשה. אני בלחץ, לא, אני בסטרס, כל הקטע של העברית מתפספס, סיריסטי, יש לי תחושה שזה קורס, קייסס, זה לא בדיל, זה מבאס, תראו למה היום עובדים 24-7 בלי הרבה תשוקה עם המון פשן נונסטופ חולמים על רילוקיישן על אקזיט מפואר על סטארט-אפ ניישן יוצאים לדייטים לאיזה רנדבו בלופ אחד מדז'ה וו לדז'ה וו שותים שוטים צ'ייסרים דרינקים עם כולם בונים על אפי אאוור על הנגובר חינם ואין פלאנס בין ההיי ללואו חיים ריאליטי שואו תאמינו לי אין אובר סל אבי הלו כבר הגיע הזמן that we speak the language of the Hebrew העברית החדשה by Hatikva 6, all about the new Hebrew. Our guest this morning on To Jewish is Rabbi Bill Rothschild, an Atlanta native, sharing memories of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights movement, and integration in Atlanta from his youth growing up at the temple in Atlanta, where his father, Jacob Rothschild, was the rabbi and a critical figure in the integration movement. Bill will be here in Tucson speaking at Congregation Beit Simcha this Friday night for the King Weekend at 6.30 p.m. on the 13th. Meet him when we come back in a few moments here on Two Jewish. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of of Tucson, enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. We are delighted to welcome the two Jewish, a good friend, Rabbi Bill Rothschild. He is a working attorney, but trained as a rabbi, worked uh, briefly as a congregational rabbi, and is the son of Rabbi Jacob Rothschild, the rabbi of the temple in Atlanta, who was a friend of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And Bill is here to share a few stories and reminiscences and memories of that incredible experience during the civil rights period in Los- in America. Good morning and welcome to Two Jewish, Bill. Hey, Sam. <laughs> Good talking to you. Thank you. So, um... Your father, uh, Jack Rothschild, was kind of a legend, um, had a lot of remarkable experiences, uh, the Temple bombing and, and his relationship with King. We're here for the King weekend. Um, tell us a little bit about your experience of that growing up. Well, I will, but let me first say something about Dad. Uh, the, these guys were not contemporaries. There's an entire story about the World War II generation. And what they did while the out on the streets generation was still in high school. Uh, Dad went to war. He was actually a war hero. He was the first rabbi in an offense in the war. And he was on Guadalcanal. Uh, he comes to Atlanta and in 1947 begins speaking out for integration. It was Rosh Hashanah sermon, by the way. Uh, 
And there are a lot of stories attached to that. But the point was that when the generation of young kids, really wonderful young men and women, who went out onto the streets did so, uh, it was these mentors from that generation that they came back to for strength and support, mentors both white and black. And my dad was one of them. Uh, Martin King, as you may recall, was born in 1929. Yeah, so a younger, um, eventually, colleague. Um, you know, speaking out for integration in Atlanta in the Dixiecrat age must have been extraordinarily dangerous, it seems to me. It, it was, uh, in terms of physical danger, uh, the FBI, as you may recall, infiltrated the Klan very heavily, and the word came back at one point that three men were on the hit list. My dad, the mayor of Atlanta, and Martin King. Uh, but this was a World War II generation who knew no fear, and Dad knew no fear. Uh, the other thing, if we're talking history for just a second, and then we'll get on to what we should be talking about, <laughs> um, Atlanta, same congregation, uh, 1914, 15, um, 16, was the trial, wrongful conviction, and then murder from prison of Leo Frank, a Jew and a member of the congregation. Um, that event seared itself into uh, the minds, the hearts of that community so much that my mother, who was born in 1924, first even heard about it when she was at the University of Georgia in a history class. Nobody talked about it. It was wow. that bad. Uh, and mother, in fact, knew, as did everybody, Leo Frank's widow, who by that time was a nice old widow lady in the congregation. And they knew her only from her maiden connections, her unmarried connections, which were to the rich and powerful Selig family. And nobody ever told her that was Leo Frank's widow. Oh, my God. Um, Leo Frank's contemporaries were in their 60s and running the temple when Dad first gave that sermon. So you had the post-World War II and returning from World War II generation coming in saying, this is right, we're going to do it. Some from out of Atlanta moving in, a lot of Jewish immigration, some old line Atlantans who had gone to war and come back. Uh, and the folks that were really scared and didn't want to get involved in what they did not regard as a Jewish problem uh, were the old guys were on the congregation. It's a fascinating period. We will talk much more with Rabbi Bill Rothschild about the civil rights movement, about the experience of an Atlantan in that, and his dad's involvement, and Martin Luther King, all of that when we come back in a moment here on Two Jewish. Congregation Beit Simcha, the House of Joy, a wonderful Jewish synagogue in northwest Tucson and Catalina Foothills, celebrates a great array of services, classes, and events this winter. Established by passionate, caring congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Beit Simcha is a vibrant, vital community that strives each day to serve God with joy. A progressive congregation in northwest Tucson and the Foothills, Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the metropolitan area, providing weekly Shabbat services, youth and adult 
adult education academy courses, social justice opportunities, outreach, and cultural Jewish programming. Join us in person for Shabbat services or come on Facebook Live by going to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A-Tucson.org. We welcome members and guests in our sanctuary in person. Call 520-276-5675 for more information, 276-5675. Religious school is going for school-aged children or grandchildren. Join us in our fabulous Hebrew school, bar and bat mitzvah programs, Torah Tykes experience, confirmation, and teen programs in a fun, relaxed setting with great Jewish learning. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org to sign up. Pesimcha's services, classes, and events are open to everyone. In-person Friday night and Saturday morning services, you can find them at our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, or email me, rabbi, at BeitSimchaTucson.org, or join us every Friday night on our Facebook page, Shabbat evening celebration services at 6.30, Saturday Shabbat morning services at 10 a.m., all with me leading them. The Facebook page is Beit Simcha Tucson. Our musical services are in person and also virtually. All of our adult education academy classes, and we have great ones, are live and available on Zoom, including Torah study on Saturday morning. You can access those Go to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org. For more information about Beit Simcha to come to services, our religious school, Torah text programs, bar and bat mitzvah, confirmation and high school programs, rich array of adult education academy courses, and of course, all of our services, including this Friday night, when Rabbi Bill Rothschild will be talking about the Martin Luther King Jr. weekend and his personal knowledge and experience of Dr. King. Anyway, all of that is this Friday night, the 13th at 6.30 p.m. at Beit Simcha. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org or call 520-276-5675, 520-276-5675, BeitSimchaTucson.org. Join me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, in the fastest growing and most active Jewish congregation in all of Arizona and its exciting beginning years. If you have a question, comment, compliment, or a criticism, Kvetrikfell, please email us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com. That's T O O Jewish Radio 18 at gmail. Or visit our website, 2JewishRadio.com. You can hear all past and present shows through the website. Streaming us from there, downloading us from the Apple iTunes Store is very popular Jewish podcasts. Top 10 in America, according to Moment Magazine, over 175,000 downloads on Podbeam and on Spotify, too. Post a rating, review to Jewish wherever you listen to our podcast. All of those comments help. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful, grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. 
While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. Now it's time for an occasionally recurring feature of Two Jewish, our most serene Zen Judaism segment, Haikus for Jews. The Shiva Visit. So sorry about your loss. Now, back to my problems. That was our Zen Judaism segment of Kohan. A Kohan for you. Haikus for Jews. We are delighted to welcome our guest, our expert, really hardly a guest, our regular guest on the subject of the Jewish world, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Rabbi. We have been talking about, in particular, the Sephardic world, the various different Jewish communities of the Sephardic world, and uh, covered them fairly well, although I don't know if we got fully to North Africa. And then we sort of worked our way around to the even older Jewish communities in places like Iran and Iraq. Which direction do you want to go? Or Greece, for that or, matter. Or Greece, for that about. matter. Right, the Romaniotha, or, or Italy, for that matter. So all across North Africa, there were very old Jewish communities. I mean, in Egypt, there are communities that go back hundreds of years before the destruction of the Second Temple. And they developed their own dialects of Judeo-Arabic. Egypt is a particularly tricky case because since Cairo was such an international city, there were all kinds of Jews there at almost every point in history. And eventually there were Ashkenazic, there were some very famous Sephardic Jews who came from the Iberian Peninsula. For example, Maimonides. Sort of famous. Hard yeah, to get just much a more famous than that, right? Although, so, of course, he, his career included... Spain, Morocco, Egypt, and in a way, and and even uh, Israel. So he had really quite a peripatetic experience. But, But Egypt is a great example of why there's not just a binary, you're either Sephardic or Ashkenazic. Um, the Egyptian Jewish community had a little bit of everything. And a lot of what it had was neither Ashkenazic nor Sephardic. So if nothing else, I want your listeners to come away from this series of sessions with the idea that not everyone is one or the other. There are a lot of other options. And two of the major other options, or three actually, are what were at one point very large, very important historic Jewish communities in the Middle East, Iran, Iraq, Yemen, all of which date from shortly after the destruction of the first temple, and all of which long predate the expulsion from Spain. So for Israelis who ought to know better, and for Americans who sort of have an excuse for not knowing any better, to call Jews from Persia or Iraq or Yemen Sephardic is just utter nonsense. It, you might as well be calling them Ashkenazic. It's just as inappropriate. Right. Those Edot HaMizrach, those Jews of the East, 
which is really all that means, right? Communities of the East often have not only very deep roots, but but a certain sense of the integrity of the community that isn't necessarily true for Jews who came from more open, even more cosmopolitan places. Right. I think for Jews from sort of pre-Christian countries, right? Like the ones we just talked about. Right. Egypt, Iraq, Iran, Yemen. There was a sense of us versus them in terms of Jews versus Muslims, who were generally their rulers. And that enabled the Jewish community to be somehow more, I don't even know what the English word for this is, solidaire, to have more solidarity. More, more solidarity, I think that's right. To be more united yeah. and less divisive than Ashkenazic communities. Which imagine, imagine Jews who are in, un, not divisive. I can't quite capture that. I mean, but. certainly for the last <laughs> almost two centuries of Jewish history, in the Ashkenazic world, Jews have been very divided. And, you know, sometimes there's like, we don't speak to this one, we don't speak, even within the Hasidic community. Sure. There are rivalries between dynasties, and whatever. So right. the Sephardic world... And the particularly the Mizrahi world, the Edota Mizrach, um, was somehow spared a lot of this. And if there's any sense of divisiveness, it's between us and everybody else, we Persians and everybody else, or we Yemenites and everybody else. It's not within the Yemenite Jewish community or the Persian Jewish community that you it, find but, the kind of divisions right. we know within our own community. Sure. Sure. Tom, thanks very much for that extraordinarily informative exploration of both the Sephardic and the Edota Mizrach worlds. We'll I talk. hope it's helpful. It is. We'll talk next week. Thank you. It's time now for our old Jewish joke of the week. Jewish humor your Bubby and Zadie knew, brought to you by Two Jewish as a public service. Two old Jewish bubbies are talking about their grandchildren. The first bubby says, Each year, I send each of my grandchildren a card with a generous check inside. I never hear from them. I neither receive a thank you nor a message. Why? It's terrible. The second bubby replies, I too send my grandchildren a very generous check. I hear from them within a week after they receive it. In fact, they each come and visit me personally. Parvus, how come? asked the first bubby. Very simple, says the second bubby. I don't sign the check. That was the old Jewish joke of the week, special feature of two Jewish just for you. You should live and be well and know that very few bubbies know how to sell people money. And now a word of Torah. This week we begin reading Exodus, the second book of the Torah, with the great Torah portion of Shemot. I admit to being a little biased here, as this was my own bar mitzvah portion, but certainly Shemot is one of the greatest sections of Torah of all. It begins with a kind of coda on Genesis, recounting how the first family of Breshid, made up of Jacob and his many sons and their descendants, all moved down to Egypt, where Joseph is the effective ruler of the country. They settled in Goshen, in the north of Egypt, and flourished there. And then the fateful events that set the future of our people begin. 
Joseph and his generation pass away. A new dynasty takes over in Egypt, which doesn't remember Joseph and his many contributions, and the Israelites are viewed differently. As they grow in numbers and wealth, a new pharaoh worries. These darned immigrants might serve as a fifth column in the event of an invasion. They speak a different language, worship a different god. Their hair is curlier, their nose is a little larger, their skin a bit darker, perhaps. They have funny accents. They look like trouble. Isn't it interesting how history has a way of repeating itself? How the same negative stereotypes and wicked ways of looking at immigrants or anyone different recur? And so the Egyptians enslave the Israelites, putting them to work as unpaid slave labor, building store cities, not pyramids, by the way, for the royal Egyptian government. They set up overseers, taskmasters, establish work quotas, push them harder and harder, try to work them to death. When that fails, the Hebrews are tougher than the Egyptians expect. They decide to simply kill all the male babies, eliminating the whole masculine population in just one generation. But the Jews are too crafty for their oppressors. In the tribe of Levi, later to be the priestly tribe, a woman hides a newborn boy baby until he cries out too loudly to be stifled. She puts him into a tiny ark, a new Noah, if you will, and sets him a sail in the Nile River. And when the Pharaoh's daughter pulls him from the river and names him Moses, a remarkable personal story is truly begun. Shmot tells of the early life and adolescence of Moses, his instinctive outrage at injustice, his hot temper, his exile to the Sinai. It shows him maturing, marrying, fathering children in the desert. And then it takes him through the dramatic narrative of the burning bush, an encounter with the commanding God that will bring him back into the crucible of history and lead him to become the greatest liberator the world has ever known. Finally, it returns him to Egypt to meet his brother Aaron and shape his destiny and ours. There's almost too much in this portion to grasp, encapsulating as it does so many of the formative tales of our people's religious history. Most importantly, unlike so many other traditions' hero stories, Exodus does not make Moses into a god or even a perfect paragon. He is just a man, a great flawed man, born into a conflict not of his own making, rising to greatness through trial and error, learning both how to follow God and how to lead people towards justice and freedom. It's a great story, of course, but more than that, it is a powerful lesson. Moses became the model for every truly great leader thereafter because of his very humanity, his ability to empathize with the suffering of the downtrodden, and utilize the power of righteousness to accomplish everything. May we come to understand that we too can accomplish great things in spite of our own imperfections and limitations if we choose to fight for justice, freedom, and truth. In just a moment, when we come back, we'll hear more from Rabbi Bill Rothschild about the MLK experience of his youth when he knew Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King, His dad was Rabbi Jacob Rothschild of the Temple in Atlanta, and Bill will share memories of the integration movement, civil rights, and personal stories as well. He'll be here this Friday night at Congregation Beit Simcha, 6.30 p.m. Friday. Please join us. 
All that when we come back in a moment on Two Jewish. We continue with our Two Jewish update on news of Jews around the world with commentary. Barbara Walters, the iconic newswoman and celebrity interviewer who made history for women and Jewish anchors on mainstream American news television, died at the age of 93 last week before becoming one of the most enduring and talked about news hosts in the world from the 70s through the 2000s. Walters was raised by parents who came from Jewish immigrants fleeing anti-Semitism in Eastern Europe, like so many of us. Her father, Lou, founded a chain of nightclubs and moved the family from Boston to Miami to New York, earning and losing fortunes along the way. In 2006, Walters told us that her parents were not religious and she never celebrated Jewish holidays growing up, but her father always came home from his Latin Quarter clubs on Friday nights. She saw that as a kind of family Shabbat tradition. Barbara Walters was married four times to three different Jewish men, one of them twice. She had one child with theater impresario Lee Goober, a daughter. Lee demanded that their daughter attend Hebrew school. While married to producer Merv Adelson from 1981 to 84, and then again from 86 to 92, they did celebrate Jewish holidays. Barbara Walters worked her way up through the ranks at NBC in the early 70s, becoming the first female co-host of the Today Show in 1974. 1976, she moved to co-host what was then the ABC Evening News. She became a longtime contributor to 2020, ABC's primetime TV news magazine show that competed with 60 Minutes on CBS. She co-founded and co-hosted The View, starting in 1997 and going on for a long time. Walters was known for her candid interviewing style. She invented intimacy on television, an ABC producer said, but also hit her subjects with blunt, cutting questions. Some of her most famous interviews included Jewish figures, including Monica Lewinsky, who Walters called her biggest get. She asked Monica Lewinsky if she would tell any future children about her affair with President Bill Clinton, which rattled Washington and the country in a way few other scandals have. What will you tell your children when you have them? Mommy made a big mistake. (laughs) And that is the understatement of the year. For ABC News, I'm Barbara Walters. Good night. Walters also scored the first joint interview with Egyptian President Anwar Sadat and Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin before they finished negotiating that historic peace agreement in 1979. In 1977, she had also interviewed Sadat on his flight to meet Begin in Israel. Barbara Walters' style was often debated, including by critics who thought she ushered in the era of news as entertainment, and it was parodied by the likes of Gilda Radner, the late Gilda Radner, may she rest in peace, on Saturday Night Live. Hello, I'm Barbara Wawa, and welcome to Barbara Wawa at Lodge. In 2014, she appeared on SNL as herself, proclaiming, What an honor it was to see my groundbreaking career in journalism reduced to a cartoon character with a ridiculous voice. Barbara Walters was indeed a groundbreaking TV journalist. May she rest in peace. Rabbi Ephraim Mervis, chief rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations of the British Commonwealth, usually referred to as the United Kingdom's chief rabbi or England's chief rabbi, can now add a sir to his title. (laughs) 
Mervis will be named a Knight Commander of the Order of the British Empire, according to King Charles' New Year's Honours list. Since 1890, the UK has announced new knighthoods and other chivalric honours twice a year, on New Year's Day and on the birthday of the ruling monarch. In the past, that was April 21st for Queen Elizabeth II, but going forward, it will be November 14th for King Charles III. I am enormously honored and deeply humbled by this award. It will be particularly moving for me to receive it from His Majesty the King in his first year as our monarch, said Rabbi Mervis. Though Mervis' most recent predecessors, Jonathan Sachs and Emmanuel Jacobowitz, also received knighthoods during their terms as chief rabbi, the title has not always been a given. King Charles List noted Mervis' work in the field of interfaith dialogue, his advocacy for Uyghur Muslims suffering under oppressive policies in China. The Honors List also noted Mervis' efforts to make the Orthodox world more inclusive of women and LGBTQ Jews. He's been an advocate for greater inclusivity in Orthodox Jewish life, appointing Britain's first female halachic advisor and establishing greater opportunities for female leadership and scholarship, the list noted. In the field of education, the chief rabbi has championed the cause of faith schools and Jewish education and issued a guide on the well-being of LGBT plus pupils in Orthodox Jewish schools, first of its kind anywhere in the world. Maurice Ostro, vice president of the Council of Christians and Jews, a British volunteer group, said the honor underlines how the establishment has started to recognize the importance of interfaith engagement, as well as the vital contributions of our faith communities and the important role they play in making our country a truly great Britain. Alongside Rabbi Mervis, several other British Jews received honors on the list, including Vernon Bogdanor, a noted political scientist, British ambassador to Ukraine, Melinda Simmons, television presenter Rachel Riley, Julian Lewis, member of parliament since 1997, and Marie van der Zyl, president of the Board of Deputies of British Jews. And in Virginia, the judge in the civil case brought against the organizers of the 2017 white supremacist march in Charlottesville that resulted in the death of a protester has slashed the penalties awarded to the victims. Victims in this case brought by two Jewish attorneys who have made it their mission to attack neo-Nazis in their bank accounts are entitled to $2.35 million, not the $26 million the jury awarded. Judge Norman Moon made that ruling last week. Moon's ruling was expected because he hewed to a Virginia law that caps punitive damages. The jury in the case, which wrapped up in November 2021, had awarded $24 million in punitive damages in place of the $350,000 the law allows. Moon left in place $2 million in compensatory damages meant to replace lost wages and other expenses associated with being victimized, bringing the total owed the victims to $2.35 million. The defendants in the case, five members of the extreme right groups that organized the march, said in November that they were broke and couldn't pay anything. The plaintiffs included the mother of Heather Heyer, a counter-protester who was murdered, and others who were injured or otherwise affected by the neo-Nazi and other right-wing attacks. Integrity First for America, a nonprofit whose CEO is Amy Spitalnik, recruited plaintiffs and lawyers for the lawsuit. In a 2020 essay, Spitalnik said the goal was to hold far-right organizers accountable in court for the violence they orchestrated with the potential to bankrupt and dismantle them through civil judgments. And finally, in Bucharest, Romania, an administrative unit of Bucharest City Council refused to dismantle a bust honoring Mircea Vulcanescu who served as finance minister in the country's pro-Nazi Antonescu government during World War II. 
Last week, a sector of the city council voted down a resolution that would have removed the monument from St. Stephen Park in Bucharest, the Romanian capital. The resolution, which attracted national attention, was initiated by a local councillor from the center-right National Liberal Party. It was not adopted, as a majority of the councillors abstained. Parliament member Antonio Andriescu of the far-right Nationalist Alliance for the Union of Romanians Party was present at the vote and accused the Elie Wiesel Institute for the Study of the Holocaust in Romania, public institution which has championed the removal of monuments honoring Nazi figures and collaborators, of rewriting Romanian history, demolishing the cult of its heroes and martyrs. The Wiesel Institute sees the refusal to adopt the motion as a violation of a law adopted by the Romanian parliament in 2002 and revised in 2015, which made glorifying figures guilty of crimes against humanity illegal. The preservation of Volcanescu's bust, the Wiesel Institute added, is also in contradiction with a national strategy to fight anti-Semitism adopted by Romania in 2021. This public policy remains only on paper as long as war criminals, members of the Antonescu government, continue to be treated as civic models by authorities, the Wiesel Institute said. Ion Antonescu, Romania's prime minister in the early 1940s, sided with Adolf Hitler during the war. Between 280,000 and 380,000 Romanian Jews were murdered in the Shoah. And that's the two Jewish news of Jews around the world. We welcome back to Two Jewish, our guest this morning, Rabbi Bill Rothschild, a practicing attorney in Atlanta, an Atlantan uh, in every way, I would say, the son of Rabbi Jacob Rothschild, a pivotal rabbi in the civil rights movement and a friend of Dr. King's. Um, let's move on. You talked about how the World War II generation came back and they weren't afraid and they started talking integration. Boy, it didn't happen quickly, though. Uh, tell us a little bit about your memories growing up in Atlanta. Let me talk personal memories, because that's what I'm not going to talk about. Uh, when you're here. Memories about me as opposed <laughs> to memories about the Kings and my parents. Sure. Um, and I get asked about that a lot. How was it? And the first thing I had to figure out as an adult was that, you know, what you grow up with, you think of as normal and everything else is different. And I had to sort of go back and recognize that what I grew up with as normal was not at all, uh, because I was Rabbi Rothschild's son, uh, and my sister, Marsha, was Rabbi Rothschild's daughter. Let me give you just one example. The first time I ever heard a Jew use what we now call the N-word was in 1976, in Jerusalem in my first year as rabbinical school from what was then a fellow rabbinical student and is now an ordained rabbi. Now, was it that no Jews in the 1950s and 1960s ever used that word? No, it was that they knew that you didn't use that word around the rabbi's family. So, um, obviously this was, even though there I'm sure were plenty of... Jews that were not only comfortable, but um, proud to work on immigration. But this was, um, boy, not an automatic, was it? 
this wasn't an easy thing to see happen. Um, Tell us a little bit about, um, so you're growing up in Atlanta. Your dad is uh, a powerful and important figure. People don't talk about, don't use the N-word at least around the rabbi's family, but it's not like Atlanta is integrated. Um, Tell us about meeting King, a little bit about that. Let's take history a bit. Uh, Martin King did something incredible that he really doesn't get the full historical credit for in most people's eyes because facts have turned into myths. Uh, In what he did with the Montgomery bus boycott of 381 days beginning in December of 1955. And I am going to talk about that from the pulpit because people forget it. It was incredible. So his dad, the Reverend Martin Luther King Sr., whom we knew as Daddy King, uh, was the Reverend of Ebenezer Baptist. And uh, Martin and his wife Coretta uh, and their then three children, I think. Uh, and I, I know the kids from later. But in any case, uh, they come back to Atlanta. And people talk about uh, the honor that we had because my parents had Martin and Credit King over for dinner, which was the first time I remember meeting them. But at the time, it was completely flipped that here is this young Afro-American, not use the word then, lucky to be called Negro minister and his wife, who got so honored by Rabbi and Mrs. Rothschild that they got invited to dinner. So uh, I remember it, it was in about 1961. I was um, coming out of seventh grade, going into eighth grade that year. Um, and they get to dinner late. The reason they got to dinner late was that they needed directions. This is a white part of town. They Now, I guess I should ask, who goes and asks for directions? Well, in general, if you're Afro-American in that part of town, the wife, not the husband, would get out, and the wife would go to the kitchen door. But they had an additional reason, and Martin King said this to my parents. He said, I didn't want to embarrass you in front of any of your neighbors by letting them know that you had had somebody like me over for dinner. Oh, my goodness. Now, my parents wouldn't have been embarrassed, but that was the king's consideration of them. Unbelievable today, although maybe very important for us to understand that. Um, Was it controversial, do you think, for your parents to have uh, Martin Luther King, Coretta Scott King over for dinner? It depends on around whom. I, Dad had spoken out for civil rights long enough and the temple had been bombed uh, in October of 1958. So <laughs> there was nothing Mom and Dad could do to make their reputations any different. I mean, they would be expected to uh, it's a continuation of what they believed in <laughs> have anybody they wanted for dinner. 
these were not the first Afro-American folks that came to dinner. Uh, the first was uh, a wonderful man and a contemporary colleague of dad's, Reverend Sam Williams, who ended up dying young from uh, something. Uh, and his widow, whom I still know as Billy Williams, had a second husband who was more famous than he, Hank Aaron. Wow. So she ended up uh, having a wonderful second marriage as well as a wonderful first that got taken from her too early. In um, Growing up in that environment, uh, obviously you were sheltered to some degree, but you, you couldn't miss the hostility to civil rights that existed. Uh, what was your experience of that? It was sheltered and freedom of speech was much greater than it is now. So people who were in complete disagreement had no problem saying so, and we had no problem coexisting. And and I guess I'll leave that there. Yeah, sure. Let, let mean, me mention one of the things kind of funny, but I was just thinking about it because we have a tendency to retroject um, into history when someone much later is exceedingly well-known and exceedingly famous. Um, we know as Jews, when we get into the historical times in, say, the 30 or 40 years before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and what we now call the First Roman War, that there were a lot of people who were preaching new things and new thoughts, uh, and that Jesus of Nazareth was only one of them. But if you look at the way most people understand history today, they look at it as a completely binary thing instead of one with a whole spectrum of variances around what could be called normal or whatever. And I mention it for this reason. In the fall of 61, I was in eighth grade. Atlanta integrated its public schools. New Orleans had done a horrible job of it in 1960. And the white business community in Atlanta was determined that that kind of thing wouldn't sully Atlanta. So it turned out that my grandmother, Leah Shalom, lived across the side street from one of the schools being integrated, North Side High. So she invited a bunch of press who were all liberal, uh, led by um, Ralph McGill, uh, and folks she knew that would be interested in it. Uh, to her house, and she invited me as well. Well, years later, my mother, who was still kicking at 98 and, and just fine, mentioned to me that the Kings were there that morning. I have no visual memory of them. This was my understanding of the importance of that couple back in 1961. In the process of um, kind of furthering racial understanding and respect, um, Atlanta has come an enormous way. Can you just talk about that a little bit? After the Second World War, Birmingham was a more major city than Atlanta. It had steel, and with a recognition that air travel was going to supplant the railroad train, it was farther west and directly under O'Hare, and it was a warm weather port. Bill Hartsfield, the mayor of Atlanta, extended Atlanta's 
runways for jet travel before jets got into commercial travel. That's item one. Item two, after the Temple bombing, the white business community in Atlanta realized that that was horrible for business. Uh, there's a funny story I could tell you sometime about Dad's comment that ended up with why don't they do it because it's right as opposed yeah. to because it's... Instead of why don't they do it because it's profitable. Yeah. Uh, but don't forget, you can win more people on an economic uh, basis because you'd already won everybody on the moral basis. Uh, so anyway, uh, and it also gave people a... Uh, uh, what would be the word for it? A way out, a, a way to save face and get done what you need to get done. Uh, but in any case, the Temple bombing shook up the Atlanta white community, the business community, and they went out of their way to the extent that they could to make it clear that Atlanta was not an environment for anything like that again. Add one more technological point that Birmingham and a bunch of white supremacists throughout the South kind of got unlucky on was the development of national TV. By the early 60s, you could film uh, police dogs, fire hoses in Birmingham, fly it through Atlanta to New York, get it developed, and get it on same-day national news network. So the result of all that was that in the late 60s, when national entities realized they, for, for business reasons, they wanted a Southern base, they couldn't go to Atlanta, but they could go to Birmingham. So Atlanta got professional baseball and professional football in the late 60s. And Atlanta got first the regional headquarters, then the national headquarters of companies uh, like, like you know, I could be a chamber of commerce for my server potatoes here. But the point was, Atlanta grew itself into an international community by doing the right things for whatever reason when Birmingham didn't. It wasn't a foregone conclusion that Atlanta would be an international city in the capital of the South and Birmingham would be a now struggling rural city. And that um, really came in part because they recognized that civil rights was a, a, a positive thing for business. There were those who recognized its inevitability and were completely amoral on the subject. But once folks of that ilk recognized its inevitability, they got on the bandwagon. Uh, if I could tell one story, I may retell. Martin King won the Nobel Peace Prize in, I think, November. It was in 1964. Atlanta community, led by my dad and three others, uh, realized that Atlanta needed to have a dinner for its first son or daughter to ever won a Nobel Prize, at least the Nobel Peace Prize. Dad was, was instrumental in saying, you don't put this at Pascal's, which is, was the headquarters of the Civil Rights Movement restaurant. Uh, I was with Andy Young campaigning for him a few years later and met Muhammad Ali there, who was training for his, uh, his fight uh, in Atlanta. But in any case, 
Um, Dan said, you got to have it downtown, the biggest hotel in town, because it's got to be perceived as Atlanta congratulating its native son, not the civil rights movement, the left side of American politics. I'm not sure you use that term. Um, congratulating its victory over the other side. So they put out this huge banquet, very short notice. And there's a story about my mom that I'll tell when I get there about her and the gifts for the kings. But in any case, um, the business community didn't buy in. The uh, mayor of Atlanta drove down to someplace in South Georgia where the retired Robert Woodruff, former head of Coca-Cola lived and sold him on what was going on. And the president of Coca-Cola issued a statement that you can now find on Coca-Cola's website because they're very proud of it. But it said point blank, if Atlanta doesn't support this dinner, Coca-Cola's gonna move. <laughs> One of his lines, point blank, was Atlanta needs Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola does not need Atlanta. <laughs> and and so it went. So it went. You couldn't get into that room with a shoehorn. I'll bet. The largest uh, outside of an army base, I guess, uh, uh, integrated meal in Atlanta up until that time. That's fantastic. Uh, Dad was a master of ceremonies, by the way. And for everybody who sees the iconic picture of Martin King holding a bowl that's given to him by the white guy. Uh -huh. That white guy's dad. That white guy's your dad. Bill, we're looking forward to having you here in Tucson this Friday night. Excited for it and looking forward to other great stories and memories. Thank you so much. And we will uh, look forward to seeing you here. Great. Thanks very much for calling. Look forward to it. When we come back on Two Jewish, we hear about next week's guest. Get a final musical play out. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki Tribe. Thanks for being here with us this morning on To Jewish with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. Join us next week. Our guest will be Jeremy Ben-Ami, head of J Street, the important Jewish organization talking about the new Israeli government. And don't forget, our guest this morning, Rabbi Bill Rothschild, will speak at Congregation Beit Simcha this Friday night at 6.30 p.m. for the Martin Luther King weekend. He will lead Torah study this Saturday at 9 a.m. too. Join us at Congregation Beit Simcha every Friday night for services in Oneg Shabbat at 6.30, Saturday morning too, 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services, Torah reading in Kiddush, live in person and available on our Facebook page. Our play out this morning comes from Ben Platt, the Jewish Broadway TV and film star, and his first album. It's the song Grow As We Go. My friends, have a Shavuot Tov, a good week, a healthy week, and a week we pray profoundly of peace. You say there's so much you don't know. You need to go and find yourself. You say you'd rather be alone. Sponsored by Two Jewish Radio Programs, Tucson, Arizona.